0: morning. I get the honor and the privilege of hanging out with you all for a second time. This is going to be fun. And guess what? I had my coffee this morning, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I want to give it up for our worship team one more time. Can you give it up for them? Like what, what I love about our worship team is, especially the last two weeks, like they set up the sermon so well. Like Whether you realize it or not, you preach to yourself when you sang those words. And later today, when you're in the car driving to your next place, you're going to find yourself humming some of that. And guess what? You're preaching to yourself. Again, I love it. Uh, Our worship should be like many sermons that we carry with us throughout the day. It's pretty awesome. Um, But chances are there has not been a moment this year so far where you probably haven't heard a sermon about hope. Right? It goes along with our, our verse of the year, Romans 15 13. It says, um, uh, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Will you read that with me? It is our verse for this year. We're going to read it together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Um, I love this uh, verse for the year kind of thing. It reminds me of when I worked at a summer camp after my first year of college. It was a kids camp. We had two weeks of student camps. It was during the student camps that I realized kids was not my calling, that students was my calling. This was also the camp where like the kid uh, the kid minister would come and it's not like other camps where they stay with the kids. No, they bring the kids, they drop them off and they say, they're yours now, see you. But we even had a memory verse for the year as well. It was Proverbs 27, 17. Some of you may know it as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Yeah, like I, 11 years later, actually more than that, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> More than that, right? I still carry that verse with me and it still carries me every time I have somebody pouring into my life, like a mentor or someone challenging me, helping me think through things. Like that verse carries me. And so that's my prayer for all of you this year as we really focus in and hone in on this verse for the year. That is one that we carry with us until the day that we transfer from here to being with our Heavenly Father. Like that's my prayer for you. And so we are starting a new series. It's called Hope Forever. When I first read this series title, I automatically thought of Wakanda forever. (laughs) Am I alone in that or did you automatically go there too? Hopefully my students did. So my hope is is that the battle cry at the end of this series for you is hope forever. Um, But this is the series that we're stepping into. And as we speak on hope, it does make me ask the question today, will you have hope when time ends for you? Will you have hope when time ends for you? Um, me and my wife, we have this family member who we, we love very dearly. She ended up passing away not too long ago. Uh, this family member had just about everything she would ever need. Um, however, this family member had cancer at one point. She ended up uh, having it go away, but then it came back, and that's eventually what um, took, her, took her life. Um, But the thing I loved about this family member is that she was blunt. She was honest. Some of you are like, I don't like that family member. I love them. You know exactly what's on their mind. Uh, For this family member, uh, like, you knew exactly what you're thinking. And and Jesus was the last thing on this family member's mind, mind, if I'm being honest. In fact, in the final days of this family member, one of the songs that they wanted to be played was Frank Sinatra, My Way. You know which one I'm talking about. I did it my way. Sheree, I'm on worship team now. Everybody, <laughs> clapped at that. Um, but like, but like that's what she wanted to listen to, and see at the at the in her final days, right? She had all of her accolades, all of her accomplishments, all of her stuff. But in those moments, she they didn't have hope, right? And then we have this family member who's one of our sweetest family members, they felt led to, to call. And while she could still communicate, they talked on the phone. And this family member told her about the hope that she could have in Jesus. While they were on the phone, and, and I don't understand it, right, God's grace baffles me, right? I just know that his grace is good and better than I could ever imagine. But on this phone call in her final moments, she begins to understand what hope is. And that family member ended up moving on from this life to the next with hope. Like, that brings us back to the question though, right? What does it mean to have hope when time ends? What does it mean to have hope when time ends? Uh, We talked about parables last week. Jesus gives us another parable in Matthew chapter 25. He compares sheep and goat. And when he's talking about the sheep, look at what he says. He says, come and take hold of your inheritance. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but come and take hold of your inheritance because you have behaved like those whose hearts have been changed. You, you cared for the poor, the sick, the stranger, the prisoner, and it was just like caring for me. And then he compares them to the goats, right? How does he describe the goats? Look at what it says about the goats. He says, depart from me. You did not care for those who were poor and sick, strangers or prisoners. You showed no evidence that your heart was ever changed by my grace. And what do the goats do? They protest. And Jesus looks at them and he says, when you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it for me. And in verse 46, Jesus says this, look at it. It says, and these, he goes, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there are three powerful truths that we are seeing here in just this verse, at the end of this parable that, that Jesus lays out for us, for us to be able to understand what we're gonna be talking about today. The first one is this, we are created to be eternal beings. We are created to be eternal beings. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11. He said, "He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he has put eternity into a man's heart. God has designed us for eternity. This is why we long for more. This is why we are constantly unsatisfied, because we're, as soon as we think that we've achieved what we were wanting to achieve, guess what happens? There's something else that we want to achieve. We are always longing for more. He made us as eternal beings. And what we see here is that there are two stages of life, life now and life after death. Every person who ever has lived knows this to be true, right? And we believe this because Jesus believed it. And anyone who can predict their death and resurrection, I think, knows a little bit more about life after death than we do. that's the first thing that we see here is that we are created to be eternal beings. The second thing is this. There are two states of existence that awaits us after death. You're either with God or you're without God. You're either with God or you're without God. There's no gray there, right? There's no debating that. There is no third option. There's not. It's either you get right or you get left you get right with the Lord or you drive a Ford. <laughs> All of you Ford drivers were like, ooh, buddy, lost respect. Okay, Chevy. Um, <laughs> just, just kidding. But see, God is not obligated to give another option. He's not. He's not, there's no third option. So that's the two, right? We are created to be eternal beings. And then there's life with God or without God, and then there's this third thing that we see here. Your choices during your life determine what state you will be in when time ends. So many of us have a poor view of when eternal life begins. Um, In fact, I've asked some students before, I was like, when do you think eternal life begins? And they're like, well, after you die. No. I believe that scripture shows us that eternal life begins when life begins. I love how Paul puts it when he says that he's going to be going with the Lord. He doesn't say, well, my time here has come. He's like, I'm just moving on. I'm transferring from this place to being with our heavenly father. He's showing us that eternal life doesn't just begin after death. No, it starts here and now. We're currently living in it. So if this is true, then wouldn't it make sense to think about your whole life, not just your life on earth? See, I I believe loving God and loving others would become more of a priority for us if we took our whole life into perspective. So what happens when time ends? There are several passages that we can turn to to look at what what happens when life ends, Uh, but we have a whole book, it's called Revelation. Now, some of us, you hear that book title and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't wanna go there. Some of us are like, yes, let's talk about all the theories in Revelation. And then some of us are like, dude, I made it to like the seven-headed beast with all the horns and everything else. And I was like, okay, now I'm gonna try and go to bed. I get it, we can be reluctant to study Revelation because it can be scary or weird or we just don't understand it. But if I could sum up Revelation very easily for you right now in two words, this is it, you ready? You might wanna write it down next to Revelation so that you can always remember the next time you go to read Revelation and you start getting scared, you can go back and look at it, you ready? Jesus wins. That's it. At the end of time, Jesus wins. So we're going to be in Revelation today, and I'm going to tell you about a little bit what's going on, but we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. And what happens in Revelation 19 is that Jesus comes back as a conquering king to establish his kingdom. And then in chapter 20, it begins with Satan being chained for a thousand years. Can you imagine with me what earth would be like if Satan is chained for a thousand years? Like think about that, right? No tempter, no force of evil fighting against God, like he is imprisoned. But at the same time, what do you think God's kingdom's going to look like, right? Think about it, a king who serves his people. That's quite contrary to what we're used to seeing, isn't it? Think about this, we're the standard of a good person. It's humility, hungering, and thirsting for righteousness, mercy. And people make peace with one another. They don't hold grudges or bitterness. And this is where Jesus and his followers make decisions not based on power or wealth, but on what is right and what is good. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? Let's take a step back, though, right? Because all of what I just described is what the church should be doing now. It makes me pause and think, when people look at me, when people look at my life, do they get a glimpse of this kingdom? Do they get a glimpse of his mercy, peace, his righteousness? Do they get a glimpse of the humility that exists within it? See, and you would think that everyone would be satisfied with this. But apparently not, right? There will always be people who do not want to live God's way. And this is where we pick, pick up in Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. Read it, read it together. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle their number is like the sand of the sea so hold up right we read verse 7 and we're like hold on a second wait Satan's been chained for a thousand years and then God's just like all right you're free he just sets him free why would why would God let Satan go This isn't isn't a question that we haven't seen or maybe even asked before. Think back to the garden where God gave two people the choice to lovingly trust him. He says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some of us look at that story and we're like, well, why didn't God just not create the tree? And I think it's along the lines of this. God knows that healthy relationships require choosing to attach God desires for us to lovingly trust him. Um, I think of my, my little girl, um, Sadie. If you know Sadie, she is the sweetest little girl ever. Blonde hair, blue eyes. I love her to death. If I was her age, I would want to be her friend because she just loves people well. Sadie is my sweetheart. And um, you can imagine how I felt one day she walked through the door and she's like, the sake of the story she's like dad i don't think sally's my friend anymore and as dad and i'm like what my sweet girl no one wants she don't want to be your friend she's crazy you're not she's crazy but instead of going into that i was why because well she doesn't come over anymore There's a lot that we can unpack in that, right? I'm sure that maybe this other little girl had some stuff going on where she just couldn't come over. But listen, it makes me ponder the question, how can you have a relationship if a person doesn't choose to attach? So once more, God will give human beings in this passage the moment to choose. You can either attach to me or you can attach to Satan. And these two verses tell us some things. First, it tells us something about Satan, right? After a thousand years of being in chains—this is the spit zone, sorry— and being in chains, what has Satan learned? Zero. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Satan is a liar, and like all liars, he is a victim to his own lies. He has built this narrative that even he is believing himself. So think about this. Satan knows the book of Revelation, right? He knows how things are going to end. He knows the last time that he had tried to intervene into what it is that God's doing by killing his son, that turned around on him. But Satan still thinks for some reason, after a thousand years being in bondage, that he can outfight God. So we see what these two verses tell us about Satan. Look at what it tells us about the people, right? Um, The people that are there for a thousand years, Jesus has reigned. A thousand years they have been in the presence of Jesus. Do you think that the people are happy with Jesus in control? Well, apparently not. Satan goes out to deceive the nations, right? How many people is it? As many as the sands of the, of the sea. Like, that's a lot of people willing to give in to his lies after a thousand years of Jesus reigning. You see two words there, they're odd words, Gog and magog. In the time that John wrote this, these symbolized groups of people who would be enemies of the Messiah. So when you see those two words, just know that these are enemies of Jesus. And there is a warning for the enemies of of Jesus. And and even for for us who are reading the passage today, there's warnings for us. Do not think you are so clever that Satan cannot fool you. You can be taken by his lies and you can be persuaded that the way of God is not the way for you. This is a, a humbling reminder even for myself, right? But we are not as spiritually smart as we think that we are. We're not. Jeremiah seventeen nine. our hearts are deceitful, evil, wicked, above all things, who can understand it? We're not as spiritually mature as we would like to think that we are at times. Even after a thousand years of Jesus being in charge, so many people believe Satan's lies, as many as the sands of the sea. How, what, what would you call these people who are like, nah, nah, I don't want to follow Jesus. I want to give in to the lies that Satan is feeding us. Who, who, what would you call these people? I love, Scripture kind of narrows it down for us, right? I love the Proverbs. Proverbs always compares wisdom to foolishness. I would say that these people who are giving in to Satan's lies are pretty foolish. So maybe a prayer that we even need to pray for ourselves is, Father, deliver me from my own foolishness. Satan gathers his followers. Look at verse 9. We're going to read the first part of it. It says, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So we see here that the, these, these nations, Mag and, or Gog and Magog, are surrounding the camp of God's people. John is very intentional with using the word camp here. It's like a callback to the Old Testament when God led Israel out of Egypt, and they set up a camp. And by day, they had a cloud, a pillar of cloud and and smoke. And then at night, they had a pillar of fire, and all of this was to remind them of God's presence. All they had to do was look up and see His presence. But you can imagine, right, imagine with me, you're in this camp, right, whether it be, I don't know, during these times, maybe it's a house. Uh, Maybe you're in a tent. You can speculate. Um, But you're in this camp, right? And you walk outside, and there are People who hate Jesus and his kingdom, as many as the sands of the sea surrounding all the way around. What is your first reaction? I think I'll go back inside now. <laughs> if, I, if I walk out through that door, um, it was much nicer in here. And then shut it. So you see this and you think, oh, there's about to be a battle. Something is about to go down. But look at the rest of verse 9, right? He doesn't just leave us there. Look at the rest of verse 9. Verse 9, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Okay, so you walk out your door. You see all of these people standing around and you're kind of like, "Hmm. whoa, this is crazy. And if that wasn't as crazy enough, being surrounded by all of the enemies of Jesus, fire comes down from heaven and wipes them all out. Like if your jaw wasn't already dropped, it is then. Like I am so thankful that I love Jesus. Like God's power fully on display. It's like a callback to Mount Carmel when Elijah is up against the prophets of Baal which is a very comical story if you read it. But at the same time, some of us might look at this and say, look, that's not very fair that God would just wipe out all of those people. That's not very fair that God would just do that. But I'm going to return with a question, right? What's not fair about it? For a thousand years, a thousand years, Jesus reigned. See, this is a pattern that we see over and over again throughout all of Scripture. It's why I love Judges, because you see God's mercy and His grace continuously poured out on His people. In Judges, you have these people who are like, all right, God, we're good. We want our own guy now. Um, you can kind of take a step to the side there. And then what does it say? It says, Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. And then they start reaping the consequences of doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And then they come back to God saying, God, save us. And so guess what? God delivers them yet again. And it happens again and again and again. This is what we see throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. God sends warnings after warnings, gives people second and third chances, and people still don't listen. Rather than submitting to God's kingdom, they want their own. So what are we supposed to learn from this, right? Our choices have consequences. Your choices about your spiritual life have consequences. Choosing to believe Satan's lies has consequences. There is a story of a young man who called a pastor late at night. And he asked if he would meet with them the next day. And so he and the pastor talked on the phone, and they set up a breakfast for the next morning. And so when they meet for breakfast the next morning, the young man told his pastor that on a recent business trip, he had stayed too late at the hotel bar with a woman colleague. The alcohol, distance from home, and easy laughter the two shared had led to the obvious, and they ended up in bed together. The young man looks at the pastor and says, now What? To make the man, to make the young man think biblically about what he must do, the minister asked him a series of questions. He looks at him and he says, listen, have you prayed and asked God for forgiveness for this? Have you went to this woman and who was involved? Have you asked her forgiveness for this and let her know that this is no longer going to be a thing that happens? Have you went to your wife and confessed this to her and sought out forgiveness from her? And if you haven't already done it yet, have you went and at least got tested? For until you get tested, you cannot approach the marriage bed without endangering your wife or the child that you're expecting. See, the young man, he listened to each of these questions without expression or comment. And when the pastor finished, the young man pushed his breakfast plate away from him, leaned back in his seat and said, I came for grace, not for discipline. You disappoint me, Pastor. See, the young man didn't want to believe that there were consequences for his choices. But let me ask you this. Do you think this young man believed Satan's lies? I think that refusing, refusing to believe that consequences exist for our sins is ultimate arrogance. Refusing to believe the consequences for our sins is ultimate arrogance. So let me ask this question Are you believing Satan's lies? Do you understand that your choices on earth do have, in fact, eternal consequences? But it doesn't end there in what's going on. There's one more verse that we're going to look at, and it describes Satan's fate. Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. At the end of time, before the thousand-year reign of Jesus, Revelation 13 tells us about this beast And some scholars like to think that this beast is some kind of government authority, probably a dictatorship. And this has been the object of lust of every dictator, world domination. Hitler and Stalin maybe came close, but another will rise that's more terrible than those two. And the false prophet who is also around encourages the people to worship this beast. This is why Baptists have historically stood for separation of church and state, and it's a dangerous thing for us to worship government. Think with me for a second, right? When we believe any politician or any government has the answer to the deepest needs of human beings, we begin to worship government and give government our ultimate allegiance. We do the same thing that we talked about that we saw Israel do over and over again. They don't want to worship the king. They want their own kingdom. Satan and the beast and the false prophet, they make up this unholy trinity, and the beast and the false prophet are already in this lake of burning sulfur. And now Satan is thrown into this lake as well to be tormented. And the Greek word there for torment means immense pain. Do you think that there is any hope in this lake? Do you think that there is any joy in this lake? Do you think that there is any peace at all in this lake? I do think that this is the time and place where Satan might finally realize that he was wrong. I can't help but to wonder if in this lake of fire he finally understands and accepts that he is not God. But from reading scripture over and over and over and over again, my, my guess is that he doesn't. I would say that he goes on believing his lies even into eternity. So what, you might say, hey, we are not in the end times yet. I have time. And listen, next week we will talk more about personal choice and what happens, what happens when your life is evaluated by God. But to wind up today, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider the struggle between the way of Jesus and the way of Satan. And it does not merely happen at the end of time. It happens every single day of our lives. Paul talks about it. He says that there is a battle waging war between the flesh and the spirit. Your choices may be happening so fast that you don't even see them as choices between the way of Jesus and the way of Satan, but they are. So we have to ask, are you choosing the way of Satan or are you choosing the way of Jesus? That's it for today. Are you choosing the way of Satan or are you choosing the way of of Jesus. Let me ask you the final question for today. Who are you choosing to follow? What is your choice? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. God, I thank you that in spite of ourselves, you work in our lives and you show us exactly who we are and our need for you. God, I thank you that ultimately we choose you because you chose us through Christ. God, I pray that if there is a person in here who does not know you, God, or does not have a relationship with you, God, I pray that you will open their eyes. I pray that you will open their ears and you will do what only you can do, God, and you will save them in this very moment. God, we have a battle ahead of us between the lies that Satan has is already put out there, but also, God, a battle that's waging war in our hearts already. And so, God, for those of us who do follow you, my prayer is this. I pray that you will help us to see our own foolishness. I pray that you will help us so that when people, when people see, see us as followers of Christ, God, that they will gl- get a glimpse of your kingdom. God, we thank you so much for this hope that we do carry. God, and and this hope that we can carry as eternal life begins, when life begins, God, this is a hope that pushes us forward. God, in it, in you is joy, peace, and comfort. In lies that Satan wants us to believe, lacks joy, may give us momentary satisfaction, but it does not give us peace. So God, let us look to you. We thank you for Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.